0: Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. its 7:20, 7-20-2022 and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time we have uh, this evening. We're so glad to be here. We're glad to know that we have been called to have a purpose for our lives here in this world. We thank you for those who have joined and and Father, as we open uh, the word and uh, prepare ourselves, we pray for wisdom. We pray that you will give us wisdom to challenge us to live according to the things we learn tonight. Also, Father, we uh, stop for a moment to pray for uh, Dave and his family. Uh, as they have lost a loved one. So, Father, we our hearts are aching uh, with grief and mourning, and we grieve along with Dave for the loss of his daughter. So, Father, we pray for strength for them as they are making decisions, comfort as they will be clear-minded, to be able to navigate through all that they have to do to prepare for next week. All this we ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, so, we have been studying in Romans, the, the book of Romans, we're in, we happen to be in chapter 11, and tonight our focus is believe, 15. Let me get to it. I'm pretty sure it's 15. Yeah. So we'll get to that. Um, Just by way of announcement, just to keep in front of us. The website is available. It's out there. It's wordistruth.com. You can easily get there with uh, lots of resources in front of you. And, you know, what's interesting, what I don't often ask is for feedback. So, uh, if you do happen to visit the website, please uh, let us know what you liked and if you didn't like something. Something you feel that might need to be changed. So that will help us improve what we're doing as far as our presentation. So we are headed into the book of romans chapter 11 you should have notes so in your notes it says for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world what will their acceptance be but life from the dead from the ground view we can we cannot see too many good things resulting in israel's failure as we step back and look at things from a different perspective, we can see some good in their failure. God is pointing out how their failure does, dim- does not diminish his eternal plan, but that it is a part of it. Just as Joseph's brothers can be seen from different perspectives, God's eternal purpose is viewing human history from his vantage point. For us, we may not be able to evaluate all things the way God does. And that is more reason for us to have implicit trust in him and his ways. So with that said, we have gone through Romans 11, and hopefully these things are starting to make sense to us. These verses are starting to gel. Uh, Hopefully you're, you're getting that. If not... I propose that you use Q and A, so that we could fill in any gaps, talk about it, lay it on the table, uh, because it's good as we <clears throat> approach these things conversationally sometimes. So let's dig in. So let's look at this. We, we broke it out in two phrases. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world. Let's look at that first. So the first thought here is Paul uses the if-then logic uh, to help us see it another way. So we have talked about this if-then logic plenty of times, especially with the Apostle Paul. And he, the thought is, if one thing is true, and obvious, it is obvious, then from that point, he can pivot and make another point that is also true. So, it is a technique to be able to uh, actually, it was a debater's technique back in the ancient world. So, if one thing is true, we can pivot off of that one thing to another truth. So, <clears throat> that's the if their reconciliation brought, if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world. Then what will, what will be uh, their acceptance? So we'll, we'll get to the second part of it. But that's the idea, his logic here. Point B, humility allows us to step back and consider other ways to see. Now, you know, if anybody needs to step back and look, it's us. And I'm, We have read this verse in Isaiah so many times. I do feel it is appropriate to read it again. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Let's go for it. So it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So we already know there is a difference between God's thinking and our thinking. So when we talk about perspective, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a way of thinking. God's way of thinking... It's different from ours and you know it takes a little humility for us to uh, actually begin to see another person's perspective some of us are very strong-willed and you know we can only see our opinion we we don't step back and take a breath and look at things from a different vantage point and often that vantage point might be a, the, the, the sunlight in the whole issue or whatever we're dealing with. It might be the silver lining. The fact that we are too close to it sometimes. So uh, it is important that we need humility. It allows us to step back, consider things in other ways. And so here's what happens in verse 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So what we should know from this is it's not even close. God's perspective is so far different from ours. He gives us this analogy, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and thoughts higher than yours. That makes us have to say, well, okay, God, you have a different way of looking at things I'd like to know what that is. Uh, I want you to, I want you to reveal to me what your way is of thinking and that's what humility steps aside from the, your own personal point of view and says, okay God show me teach me. So point C going, going forth Paul already established the point that there is another way to see Israel's failures. And stumbles. So it's really quite a lot of uh, uh, context that we covered that does give that. but I'm going to just look at one verse. Uh, well, there's a couple here in the context, but the one, which is 11, verses 11 and 12. So Romans 11:11 11, 11 says, "Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery?" Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now, we wouldn't have had that perspective. (laughs) Most people would say, Israel failed miserably. And not only did they fail time after time and have to be disciplined by God, but then they rejected their Messiah, and if that was not enough, then they crucify their Messiah. So you could say, oh my gosh, what in the world uh, would God do with such uh, insolence, with su- such disobedience and stubbornness? Uh, we could say that. And then our answer would be one thing. <laughs> but God's answer is something else. He sees it from a larger perspective. And he's making the point here hey, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So we already understood what salvation means here in this instance. It means that uh, God is now going to use the church uh, as ministers of reconciliation to the world. So we covered that. So uh, verse 12, but if their transgression means riches for the world and and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will be their will their full inclusion bring so we covered this uh, and we saw what this means and actually that full inclusion is the word fullness pleroma and that fullness means Israel is going to come into their uh, the fullness of what God had planned for them when he called them from eternity past literally Israel will succeed And they will succeed in just the way that God called them to. So we couldn't see that necessary. And why why we even point these things out to you is because there are many theologies out there that do discount, uh, write Israel off, uh, say that that's it for Israel. (laughs) It's all about the church now. There is no more Israel. The church fulfills all the promises that Israel had. You know, There's all kinds of theologies out there. So why do we need to talk about it this way? Because we need to make sure we don't fall into any of those categories. So, uh, so he established it, that there is another way to see Israel's failures. And um, we should see that about ourselves. I think I made this point last week. When we fail, which we will and and do often, times. We should look at our failures, not as the end of the road for us, but that there may be another way to see this. We should always ask ourselves, how does God see our failures, um, and and give us it gives us a pause. To stop and think and and evaluate ourselves, not in our light, but in the light of what the Word of God tells us. It, it it's good. It's good. It's healthy for us to stop and examine. Where did we go wrong? What did we do that was so terrible? Uh, and, and how does God respond? All of those things are. Those are healthy things to do, especially when we fail. Point D. Their rejection. So, for if their rejection, thinking about that phrase, so God's discipline, although temporary, serves a greater purpose in the plan. We should also extend that logic to our spiritual growth with its ups and downs. As That's the point I'm making. So, uh, that purpose. Now, and we already said this last week from that standpoint, and that is... That God saw all of this before he called Israel. He saw their failures. And I think that's a point later on at the end, too. That's something that we have to keep in mind. Now, e- even if, if God were judging us based on our failures, he probably wouldn't have saved us in the first place. But that's not what he's judging us on. And salvation is by grace. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. God not of works. I mean, we could say a lot about that so so that salvation doesn't depend on our performance. But uh, the idea that when we do fail, and we do see our sinfulness, our failure, we should be able to make adjustments according to the word, but we don't have to go to some drastic point, oh, we're lost forever. You know? that That is how... A lot of theologies view this. They say, oh, if you do this, well, you're, you're definitely lost. Well, God doesn't see it that way because it's grace. And, and there's a way that God wants uh, to bring us to fullness in terms of our personal relationship or walk. Uh, so we should think about that logic when we're growing up spiritually. Point H. Reconcilia- reconciliation to the world. So if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world. Okay. So the Gentiles, that is the church, that's how Paul really references in chapter 11, uh, the church. He, he's talking about it in terms of Gentiles. And why? Because he's just letting us know that he's not referring to any Jewish nation. There were two of them, just so you know. It assumes the role of ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. And that is to the world, not as a nation, but individually, and not under the Mosaic Law. So, we covered that point. <clears throat> And that's an important point to note, that that's when he says it's reconciliation to the world, we don't mean that because of what happened with the Jews failing with israel failing that all of a sudden the world is now reconciled it's not it's not reconciled so he doesn't mean that and he understands that what does it mean then it means that the church assumes that role that responsibility before god as ministers of reconciliation and it's not just to a certain section but to the whole world Uh, but not a nation but individually so, uh, and we're not under Mosaic law. So notice, we, we read that, and I, I thought, I don't need to put the verse in there. Uh, but if I were going to put a verse in there, it would be 2 Corinthians five, eighteen through 21, or something like that. Point E. The meaning of this phrase does not leave any wiggle room. The world is certainly not reconciled. There's no doubt about that. But the opportunity for this is maintained through the church. So when I say Rick Wiggle Room, you you've heard me say that before. You've heard me use that term. And there are some scriptures that are pretty clear. And I, you know, God expects that when we look at those scriptures, that we reason with Him around that those facts that he is laying out he's expecting that we come to certain conclusions so for for this when he tells us for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world well we know the world is not reconciled we know that's an ongoing process and we know that even though uh, that scripture is there there are going to be people who continue on in disobedience and rejection of christ and they will not be saved Uh, So we know it can't mean that. And there are other verses that there's leaves no wiggle room. Although people uh, and theology somehow seem to uh, ignore them. I'll just give you one or two. When he says in Romans 3 that there is none righteous, not even one. There's no wiggle room there. You can't say, well, you know, I'm I am some I have some righteousness and God does respect that. But I understand what he's saying about no righteousness. But I have some. No. You don't. That includes every person born in Adam. There is no there is none righteous, not even one. Now, it doesn't mean that none can ever be righteous. It just says that from birth none of us can say or have a place with reference to God, where we could say we're righteous. We're we're dead in our transgressions and sins. It says that because of our sin nature, we you know everything that we do is is dead. It's evil. And if we this is a verse that we can't turn away from. We have to accept it, or we could say another verse. Now we know. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be silenced and held accountable before God. But 20, therefore, by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in his sight. No person. So you, you can't pursue a relationship with God by doing what the law says. Now, you might say, well, what's the law? Evil? Is the law telling you to go out and... Run buses off the road and kill people. and No. The law is good. So by doing what is good, you cannot have or develop a relationship with God. That's what he's saying. You're barking up the wrong tree. That's not the way to establish a relationship with God is by the works of the law. That seems opposite from what most people think. I have to admit that. It seems that most people would think, "Oh, if I do what's right, well then God, you you ought to respect me." <laughs> and that's what, but when you see a verse like this, and this is Romans 3:20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law by doing what the law says. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. So, no wiggle room there. There's no two ways about it. It's just one way. So when we say there's no wiggle room, you will find that there are a lot of statements of Scripture that kind of put us in a corner, especially when it comes to our capabilities, our limitations. We need to pay attention to those. God is not telling us that just because he feels like writing words. He's telling us these things because he's trying to protect his righteousness. That's important to him. He can't be compromising with... You know, some he favors, others he doesn't. He has condemned everybody alike. So that's why he can say there's none who do good, not even one. So, so back to our notes. I'm only trying to make the point when we talk about no wiggle room. Because, you know, when we see that, I would hope that our attention is directed to... The conclusion that God wants us to have. So for instance, the world is certainly not reconciled, but the opportunity for this is maintained through the church, okay? Point F. The if then, which we discussed earlier, logic says that the first part is obviously true. Remember we were talking about that, right? It uses a truth, a known truth to pivot to teach a truth, right? The first part is obviously true and the point is made in the second part then so paul assumes that israel was rejected Uh, you could say that's clear because god is not dealing with israel now but we know that their rejection is temporary that's how we have to understand it because why they're going to be restored and we're going to talk about that in the next phrase because it talks about them coming back from the dead to life, so we'll understand that. Obviously, there's Paul is making that point. So yes, God rejected Israel, but not permanently, temporarily, and that's the that's the important point to make. Okay, so there's that if-then logic. It's going to come into play as well. All right, so for if their re- rejection brought reconciliation to the world, point number two is what will there acceptance B, but life from the dead. So uh, this is the point that he's making from the other point. Point A, their acceptance? Yes, that's right, their acceptance. Now, again, why do I have to stop here and say things like this? Is because there are so many theologies out there who don't accept the fact that God has accepted Israel again, or he will accept them again their acceptance is not, or their rejection is not fatal. It is not final. They they will come back to life. And if that's not in your theology, then you got a problem with what the scripture is saying. And that's what we need to make sure, as we're looking and going through these verses, that we interpret them according to the direct statements that are made. So their acceptance, yes, that's right, their acceptance. For, and then, here's the quote, uh, and later on in the chapter, in verse 29, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So there you have, God is saying, I called Israel, and I will not go back on what I said. God, remember, God called Israel, not in ignorance, but in full cognizance of everything That they would be before him. Even in all of their failures, he knew already. And he's not about to change his mind about his calling on Israel. Remember, we always, we just talked about this a lot earlier about seeing things from a different perspective. So we're allowing God to show us his. So that's 1129 where where we get that. And we're not there yet, obviously, but we will get there. Point B, from God's point of view, since their temporary rejection was good, and it follows, that their acceptance can only be good, even better. So that if we're making a point with the if-then statement, and he says, if their rejection brought this, it brought, you know, st- uh, redemption or reconciliation to the world—that's a good thing. Then what's going? What would their acceptance be? Oh my! In other words, it must be even better. Right? So that's that's the logic of where Paul is going with this. But even in all of this, he is stating facts that cannot be overturned. Right? It's for sure. Israel is, does have a place in God's economy going forward. That's for sure. And that's from his point of view. Point C, life from the dead. Okay, so let's deal with that phrase. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So let's look at, uh, obviously it's a biblical metaphor. Let's see what, what is meant by life from the dead. So first thought is dead. What is dead? And that's Israel's state now. And what is that? They are enemies of God, Romans 11:28. We should read that. Um, just to be sure, 11:28 says, "As far as the gospel is concerned, they, and this is Israel in context, in present day, they are enemies for your sake." Now, you mean, when you think about it, God called Israel. To give the gospel to all these nations in the world. And as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies. So we might say they are dead, right? As far as their relationship with God at this point is, they're enemies. And watch out, because you who are in the church, he's saying they're enemies as far as you're concerned, because they hate the gospel, they hate it. So and they are lost, and this is Romans 10:1. So I'll go back to 10. It says, "Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved." Now it doesn't say they're lost, does it? But he's praying for their salvation. So if he's praying for their salvation. That means they are lost. That's that's the point. What what is it? What, what kind of lost are they? For I testify about them that they are zealous for God. All right, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So it's an issue that has to do with ju- their justification, their salvation before God. So yeah, we ought to pray that they will be saved. We ought to witness to them if we have the opportunity because they're in a place where they are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know what that, what the end of that is. So right now we could say they're in a lost state. Uh, and they accuse God of rejecting them and condemning the church. So in this state, they're the ones who accuse God of the word failing. Let's read Romans 8.31-34 through 34 just to see. You can see where why I chose these verses. Um, 8.31, what then shall we say in response to these things? And this is after God told, uh, read 8.29-30, which talks about God for those who God foreknew, He predestined, we conformed to the image of the Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's a mouthful. But what do they say about such things? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, there are those who are against us, and that would be primarily Israel. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not all... Uh, he not also along with him graciously give us all things then another question who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen well we know who that is that's Israel they bring in a charge against those whom God has chosen they bring in a a charge against the entire church age or we go to the uh, next phrase in 34 who then is the one who condemns well That would be Israel again. And then Paul's answer is no one. If anybody could, it would be Christ. But he's the one who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. We could extend this, I think, to 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, right? This is what the Jews would like to do because they don't don't agree with the calling of the church. They're saying, God, you can't do that. God, it's you you're foul. You, you 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 can't call the church. We're the chosen people. Well, God could do this. He has done this, and uh, Israel stands in his place. Well, this is their attitude in the lost state where uh, they obviously are said to be dead. Here, point number two in our in our notes. Currently. Israel has what we might call the spirit—a spirit of stupor, hardness, a hardened heart, heart-heartedness. Heart it's <laughs> a lot of uh, to say there. hardened hard, heart, heart-heartedness, eyes and ears that cannot see. This is Romans eleven seven through ten. We have gone over these things, but I'll read them again. What then, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them this, a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. For them, May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs bent forever. So we saw this language, and we understood Israel's state in their rejection. And part of this is to say, if you turn away from the light, what are you turning toward? Darkness. And so that's what we saw in Israel's future going forward in their rejection. So... That's the dead part, right? This is what he means when he says that they will have life from the dead. But I just want to reverse that and talk about what what it means to come back from the state of death. That And there, we're not talking about, obviously, physical death, okay? Point number three. So we're going to talk about life now. So God will revive Israel after the church departs. Now, we get this. Right in the context. So, Romans eleven twenty five and 26. Let's look at it. I do not want you to be ignorant of this, uh, of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So notice, in part means... Temporarily, okay. Until what? Well, once the full number of Gentiles co- has come in, come into what? Come into the church, right? Because if you're saved right now, what happens? You are baptized into the body of Christ. Romans, uh, that's First Corinthians twelve thirteen. That's what happens to people when they're saved in this age. It, it automatically, what like it says in Second uh, Corinthians. Five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and so this is <clears throat> this is the the way of life for us. So this is what he's talking about here. There's a mystery going on. I, Israel has experienced this hardening or this hard-heartedness that we talked about uh, is only in part. It's only going to be temporary. It's not complete. God does not fully cast away Israel. He just rejected them in terms of discipline until so this hardening in part until that means there's going to be a period where it's going to be a change. So what's going to spark that change? Well, the full number of Gentiles has come in. In other words, God has completed what He wants to do in the church. That's that's going to be the catalyst that starts all of this. And what will God do in verse twenty-six? And in this way, all Israel will be saved, right? So when he says all Israel, he's again talking about the nation, Israel. And like we said, Israel as a nation, sure, they failed. There's no doubt about it. But God will restore Israel to its national status. And they will again be that priest client nation to the world as it is written that so he's not going to save him in their unbelieving stupor deadness hardness of heart he's going to turn here it says the deliverer will come from zion he will turn godlessness away from jacob in other words uh, israel will come and believe they will trust so what is the change. And we go to Revelation. What happens? Let's look. Revelation 7 3. We covered this, but it bears some reminding. Here it is. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Notice the servants of our God. So, these, right now, we already said our verse talked about Israel as being dead enemies, right? Their hearts are hard, spirit of stupor, right? eyes that cannot see, on and on. We saw all that. But now, what's the, the difference here is now they are servants of God. And then it goes on, and then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, from the tribe of Gad, and so forth. I won't have to do all of them, but these 12 tribes will establish the physical presence of believing Israel on the earth. Well, that's, that's not what happened early on when they're failure, but now in the tribulation, these, they're called the servants of our God. So in 12, Revelation 12, and we looked at this in more detail through the whole chapter, because the whole chapter is about Israel. 12.1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and with a crown of 12 stars on her head. It talks about her being pregnant and so forth, but I'm skipping all the way down. We covered all this to 17. The dragon, we know is Satan, was enraged at the woman, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. So, who is the rest of her offspring? This woman? Well, it's the remnant. It's those who are left, and that is Israel. If the woman was Israel. The rest of her offspring is the remnant of Israel. Who are they? What are they? What are some of the characteristics? Those who keep God's commands. They are under the Mosaic Law. However, they are—they recognize the New Covenant. That's what, just like we read in Romans, "This is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins." So, they're under the New Covenant. See that the, the uh, Israel rejected the New Covenant with its mediator, and that is Christ. They rejected that. So so the rest of our offspring so here's the here's what we know about them they keep the commands of God they're under the Mosaic law new covenant and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus right so that they're saved they put their faith in Jesus these are these are the characteristics of the people in the tribulation who are Jews we already saw some of the whole thought about you know how they would um um in in, in uh, the earlier verses, how they would come to life from the dead. So let's go back to our notes. So that deals with the tribulation, right? Uh, the landscape of Israel. Well, the first, point three, is life. God will revive Israel after the church departs. We read that. Uh, point four is the tribulation will be the landscape is in, in, uh, in which Israel will be brought to life. It looks like a, an extra Israel in there. Please correct that, I am uh, in my notes here. If you can, I'm just gonna correct that. <clears throat> so it's the landscape in which Israel will be brought to life. It's, it won't be brought to life in this age. It won't be until after this age is over, according to um, Romans 11:25. So we read 7.3, Revelation seven three, where we saw that, and we saw Revelation twelve seventeen. Point D, we're closing in on this, so, which is to say, it looks like we might have some time for some Q and A. So uh, let's, let's see. Point D: There are those who hold, who would who would um, count Israel out, or would redefine Israel, but God's plan for Israel Israel will be realized. Remember, God already knew the full extent of Israel's failures before he called them. So we're not saying that, uh, you know, we're not going to be a part of the the crowd who say that Israel is done, Uh, or or what they call replacement theology, or uh, covenant theology, or there's a lot of ways people have termed this. But the point is how do they handle this point that we're dealing with today about Israel it shapes their theology and uh, you know it does quite a a lot of harm I would say to God's eternal purpose what he is after in the way he has called the church and this unique calling that he has given us so I think it, it robs us Of and robs God of him being able to fulfill his greatest feat which is to bring many sons into glory. And it just marginalizes uh, the church as though we were just an extension of Israel which that is absolutely not true. So when we understand the omniscience of God the foreknowledge of God we know that God saw Israel. He's the one that formed them, you know, on the backs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one that did all this with the expectation that they would fulfill his purpose. He already knew that they were going to fail in every respect. So we cannot think that, okay, God is operating in a linear way. Like we can see things, oh, something happened. Oh, so what should we do? Oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Let's do this. And then something else happens. Oh, man, we we were taken off guard. We didn't know. So how do we handle that? Let's do this. God doesn't operate that way. God already knows what's going to happen. In fact, that's why we have Revelation, the book of Revelation. God is saying, hey, before these things even come to pass, let me tell you what's going to happen. That should give us confidence. We, we already know, as Steve Harvey, I always quote, would say, the rest of the story. We, we know it. We, we know the conclusion of the matter. So when we understand that, we don't understand because we're some clairvoyant or something. We understand that because we have allowed God to give us his perspective on things. And so it becomes a matter of trust. Do we trust God's perspective? Are we going to allow him to dictate to us what he thinks? It takes us right back to that first passage in Isaiah 55, 8 9. His thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are his ways our ways. Will we allow God to speak to us, to tell us what he thinks? That's what's important about this. Point E, we're going to, this is our final point tonight anyway, but I'm sure we're going to have more in this context. Point E, which is a scripture we have covered, and we just want to bring that, I think it's appropriate. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below searched out. Now, if that's possible... See, what are we ending with? We're ending with more if-then logic. He's, he's posing, if this is possible, and we know it can't be possible, we know it's, this is a truth that absolutely cannot be done or performed. The heavens above cannot be measured. And I don't care how powerful these new telescopes they have, That can see far into space. They can. They are only seeing a limited amount of what is out there. Just a very limited amount. So he's saying, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth be searched out, will then will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done declares the Lord. This is a statement. Now, you know who knows the statement? Israel. Israel. They know. I mean, this is a promise. God is literally saying, there's nothing, and I don't care what you have done. And he says, I, the, I already saw all that you have done, and I still call Israel. This is a promise that God will absolutely fulfill his purposes for Israel. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to look at Israel as, even though they are enemies, we know that they're still in the plan of God. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So this is one of those, we end, we start with an if-then statement, we end with an if-then statement, which says that we absolutely cannot measure the, the heavens above, the universe, and we certainly cannot measure the foundations of the earth below. Uh, if if we could, he would he would reject Israel, but he we can't, so he will never reject Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. So hopefully that point is made in this verse and when we look at this verse it should remind us yeah, this is further um, confirmation of what Romans chapter 11 is telling us so what we're going to do at this point we're going to pause um, and we did discuss if there are questions or thoughts we would have some opportunity to to talk afterwards so this is that time so the floor is open i will pause hey doug this is dwight um i don't remember where he where paul started using the language of the elect but um, it seems like it would have been appropriate to start using that in the university. the elect <clears throat> Yeah you mean you said where does he use it or when does he use it? Yeah I'm, I'm just surprised he hasn't um, oh, oh just curious rather why he hasn't used that term yet in Romans 11. Yeah, if you think about it, I see, I see your, yeah, I see your thought there, yeah. Because we're using this language that does not seem like what we read in Romans chapter six, seven, eight, especially eight, some of those verses that I, uh, you know, I said it's a mouthful, those he foreknew, he also called, and so forth. Well, yeah, he just used that language. When you think about what his appeal is at this point, his appeal is directly, squarely to the Jew. Even though he's writing to Gentiles, his appeal is to the Jew. It's just like he says, oh, did God cast away, this is chapter one, did God cast reject his people? Uh, By no means. I'm an Israelite myself. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says? And so forth. So, so the whole thought of this is to talk to them knowing that they don't respect the church. We already uh, discussed about uh, the thought of how they reject or condemn or have a problem with the calling. But Paul is this He already covered a lot of that, and now he's trying to speak to them directly to tell them that God is dealing with the Gentiles. The calling now, especially those verses that talk about reconciliation to the world, or uh, blessing has come to the Gentiles. Where does it say that at? Here it is. yeah, so in as much as I'm talking to you Gentiles, as much as I'm an apostle, I take pride in my ministry, uh, hoping to arouse some of them to jealousy, uh, rejection of, of the world, brought reconciliation to the world. Let's see, where's where the point I'm looking for here is, uh, yeah, yeah, here it is in verse 12. But if, if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, so... What do you mean riches for the Gentiles, right? So that language speaks to the Jew in a milder way than just saying, okay, God has put Israel on pause and now he's dealing with the church. It's literally saying that, but in in a language that's softer. I am talking to you Gentiles, right? Or... When we read uh, in 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So so notice, what do you mean the full number of the Gentiles? It's not just Gentiles that's that's coming in. Paul said, he's a Jew and his he said in the very first chapter, or verse of 11, that he, was from the tribe of Benjamin. He saved. He, he's saying that, but he's using this language because he's trying to establish, in the eyes of the Jew, that the nation of Israel is not a nation before God. God is now dealing with the Gentiles. Right. So he's he's focused on delivering it in this way. So when you when you read through it. And notice that Paul did have this language earlier, talked about the sons of God and the spirit of our son, the Son, and how um, um, we could just look at it in Romans eight. Just and the point that I'm making here, especially, is verse uh, sixteen: the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And then he goes on and talks about the children of God, waiting for the children of God. The whole universe will be affected by when God finishes what he is doing in us. We're sons. Israel was a son. He's talking about a nation. So, so I, I think, the answer is that, that he is tempering uh, his language, so that it doesn't offend, but it teaches. So, because if look, they're already offended; they're already making accusations against God, and he's already said a lot, especially in Romans nine, where we came from, and ten, but now he is appealing directly to them hoping that it will arouse some of them. I don't know, that's my thought. Uh, your thoughts? Um, that sounds reasonable. That sounds very good. I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but once we start getting into chapter 12, then he start talking more about that. Yeah, chapter 12. we'll so, so Go ahead, Bill. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was gonna Basically, what you're saying was that that message in you know, 11 was was for the Jew and somewhat for the Gentile. He wasn't bringing in uh, too much of the elect because they were still dealing with the Mosaic law and couldn't just pour out truth on them in a way that they could not understand. Yeah, I I guess you could say that. Yeah, it's more of what we might call language of accommodation. Although, one thing is clear. He is not talking to the Jew directly. Even though when I said that, I said, oh yeah, he's speaking to the Jew. He's talking to the Jew through the Gentile. So if you see it, that says that we need to know this information. As Gentiles, when we're we're not Gentiles, but we have the Gentile culture that is. If we have, if we're com- we're coming from a Gentile culture, we he's saying we need to understand how this transition works. How do we go from God over fourteen hundred years has been dealing with Israel, to now, He is not He is dealing with the Church. How does that transition happen? How. You, as a, even though you you could say, Well, I'm just, I don't need to care, I don't care about Israel. You could say that. But really, God wants you to understand how this works. And it is evidenced by all the detail that we have in these verses. Uh, In fact, the whole of Romans, Paul is dealing with salvation from their perspective, which is righteousness, justification. He starts off in Romans 1. Talks He says, in the gospel, a righteousness of God has been revealed. A righteousness that is from first to last and so forth. To for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He says that from the beginning of Romans. And he's acknowledging Israel's call, but he's also acknowledging Israel's failure. So they... The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So, we, I would say, we, even though we have um, Gentile culture, Paul is helping us understand so that we know the ground on which we stand. It is not just, well, let you know, I, I mean... Anytime we neglect the word of God, then that means we didn't avail ourselves of what God wants us to know. He wants us to know this information. It's part of our spiritual growth and and our understanding, our confidence in God's actions and dealings with us. We need to know that information. So when we think about who we are in Christ, what what did we come from? I mean, there are scriptures that deal with our plight uh, okay gentiles what do you need to know so when you're coming into the body of Christ what like we're, we can talk to Jews and say well Jews you're not, you're not under the Mosaic law you're not this you're not you don't do this you don't do that well what about you as a gentile right in Christ there is no Jew and there is no gentile as i said he uses gentile to help Jews understand to, to solidify the fact that there is no jewish nation serving god right now Remember we talked about the servants of our god there is that's not happening right now but it will in the future that's what he's he's letting us know so understanding that chronology of how things are, are happening and unfolding is giving us confidence right? we know we know god's thoughts we know his perspective so i would i would look at it that way I'll pause. Other thoughts out there? Okay. Sounds like silence is consent. It's we We all agree, okay, so not not consent. I'm kidding. <laughs> consent that we don't have any more questions, that is. So that if we will close, we will conclude. All right, Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you so much for this time you've given us. we we appreciate. The fact that you, take, you have taken the time to explain in detail to us these things. We, we value every word that you have given us in, in, the, in, in the scripture. And we pray that as we continue to, to, to have humility towards you, that you will continue to lead and guide us into things we would have never understood or seen. Father, we know that if we continue to let the Spirit guide and lead us, you will take us to places where eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and neither has it entered into the heart of man. Father, we're thankful for this group uh, where we can talk about these things and openly discuss your word and allow that to be something that our humility, we're not afraid to have it towards you, Father. So we pray again as as we continue to put before you those who are grieving. And that, in fact, is all of us at this hour. And praying for comfort for this church, for Sneed family as we go forward. And Father, all those others that we also have on our hearts that may be sick or shut in or financially in distress, uh, there's many conditions Uh, that we're going through down here in the devil's world on the battlefield so father we pray as we close that you watch between us keep us safe it's in christ's name amen 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 amen